And well, you may be seated uh, again. Good morning. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so typically what we do, right, is, is preach right through books of the Bible. But during winter here, we're, we're working on a different series called Preeminence, His Story, Our Practice, um, where we're really looking at what does it mean for Jesus to be first in all things. And our kind of umbrella blanket verse for this whole series is Colossians 1, 17 through 18. It says, and he, meaning Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And that word preeminent, we said he's only used one time in the whole New Testament. It's to talk about Jesus. Because it's a word that means holding first place, having uh, the highest rank, possessing the greatest dignity or glory. And so we, we said on the onset that the whole Bible is a story, his story of Jesus, of the God who creates a fall that, that leads to sin and death, his pursuit of us in redemption and his return in restoration. And so we said, hey, given that big story of Jesus being first, his story should also dictate or determine um, our practice. And so we do believe that Jesus saves individuals, right? That you move from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that part of that movement from death to life is to bring you and make you part of the people of God. And that part of how the people of God are shown is as a body, and parts of those body include the local church, that's actually God's plan for how God's people would know one another, serve one another, care for one another, etc. And so we said, hey, as individuals and as a community, a gospel community, we said we think that our practices should embody and embrace kind of four key marks of discipleship. We said if Jesus is going to be first, because Jesus is preeminent, we are going to gather we're going to gather around the person and work of Jesus. We're going to gather with Jesus' people. And then we said, uh, number two, is if Jesus is going to be first, that he needs to be first in all things, and that includes our finances. And so we say we want to give. We gather, we give, we grow because Jesus is preeminent, because Jesus is first. We want to pursue growth in him and for him. And then lastly, right? Go, go on mission because Jesus is preeminent. His agenda should be our first priority. So gather, give, grow, go on mission. And so over these several weeks, we're kind of walking through each one of these. And today we're looking at, uh, at that second G, give, uh, for, for the second time. We're kind of doing two weeks on each one. So if this is your first Sunday with us. Like we don't talk about this stuff every week, but we think it is important if Jesus is truly going to be first in our lives. That we sh should consider rightly, like, what does it look for him to be first in our finances? Um, like we believe that God is a giver. We're going to tease that out more here in a moment. But I want you to ask yourself, how do you respond in times of need, times of want, times of desire, times of desperation? 
Because when we have those feelings or when we find ourselves in, in those, those different moods or seasons, we, we recognize we have, we're people who need. We're people who desire. We're people who take. And, and part of that is because, I mean, simply put, we're just very self-focused people. And, and some of that's okay. Like, right, I mean, it's okay to, to be a self-manager. It's okay to kind of, you know, you know, manage yourself a, a bit, right? Um, but what happens is we get so self-focused that we become driven by what our needs are at all times. And, and in times of need, or we said sometimes in times of greed or both, right? Like our world just gets smaller and smaller, and it makes us easier to place ourselves as first. And so hourly and daily, we talk inside our heads about how any situation makes us feel. Right? Like, like not a lot of us like naturally tend towards empathy. Like we're always like, well, how do I feel about that? Like maybe it's a news story. Maybe it's something somebody shared. Maybe it's a conversation we had with somebody. We always and constantly look at things from our own perspective. And you're like, well, yeah, because that's the one I've got. <laughs> right? Like we all have our own perspective. And yet if we're disciples of Jesus, it's like you are unique. I want you to know that. Your perspective does matter. But we should constantly be reorienting ourselves away from ourselves. Because naturally, we will tend to look inward, to look at ourselves. And so our desires usually end up being driven by ourselves, become very immediate, very temporary, very selfish. And so we often desire immediate comfort rather than long-term correction, right? That's why like, you know, hey, like, like late night ice cream always feels better than an early morning workout, right? Always, right? Because we tend towards comfort rather than something that could have looked like discipline. So part of our challenge is if we want to believe and act um, that we are going to find the most enjoyment and the most fulfillment from being consumers rather than being contributors, right? I I was in marketing for years and years and years. And so, like, when I watch an advertisement, I'm always asking, what is the, like, what's the sin of the advertisement? Meaning, like, like, what are they saying is wrong that needs to be fixed? What is the savior? It's always the product, right? And then the salvation is that you're going to achieve. Very, very, very rarely do you find ads that are like, hey, here's how you can be more selfless. You know what? Hey, actually, you don't need our product. You're fine. You know, right? It's always very, like, a consumer-driven rather than contributor given. So if we're, as Christians, right, we need to have our hands open to give, to share, to be generous in ways that cost us. And and we understand that 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 does require a bit of faith. It does require a bit of courage even. The generosity in all of its forms is always an act of faith. Giving in all of its form is an act of faith that, that God is enough, that I will be provided for, that I will be cared for. Because you're trusting that if I give something away, that I'm still going to be okay. That we stop relying on what we possess and start relying on who we behold. We're called to behold Jesus as first in all things. And so it it gets down to orientation and and how we look at things and how we understand uh, blessing. And I just, I want us to know before we begin that we have received so much And we've also been given a responsibility to be generous. And so putting Jesus first 
is birthed from a reorientation to see what's been given, how it's been given, and then how we can give. And so three big ideas I, w- I want us to focus on today. We're going to do three things. We're going to long for Jesus. We're going to look to Jesus. And we're going to listen to Jesus. So we've got three big sections of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to start. If you have your discipleship guide, we're going to be in um, uh, giving week two, if I didn't say that already. So part one, Malachi 3, 6 through 12. That's the, at the end of your Old Testament. We're going to long for Jesus first. We'll look to Jesus, then listen to Jesus. All right, Malachi Chapter 3, 6 through 12. It's at the end of the Old Testament, right before the New Testament. If you can't find it, it'll be up on the screen. It says this. It's the prophet Malachi speaking for the Lord. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby, hold on to this, guys, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. Verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, if you grew up in church, like, actually, I I grew up in a church that had the, you've robbed the tithes from the storehouse written on the giving envelopes. And I was like, all right, I guess, I guess I'll do it. (laughs) You know, I don't have much, but dang it, I don't want to rob the Lord. We're going to talk about what that means here in a moment. So maybe you've heard these verses before. Maybe you've heard them misapplied. What I want us to begin with is that generosity and giving do matter if we're going to be holistic disciples. That if we are holistic people, mind, body, and soul, then what we do with our time, talent, and treasure matter to God. And so we also need to be people who are shaped by the character and nature of God. And, And these verses begin with God saying, hey, by the way, I haven't changed. Like your circumstances may have seemed like they have, your emotions, your desires, the path of your life, your relationships, all those things have changed. But God says, "I I don't change. And in some regards, what he's saying is, hey, there were things I taught your forefathers. There were things that were laid out throughout the Old Testament that as God is getting ready to close out his prophetic word to his people before 400 years of silence, is he's saying, hey, first off, nothing's changed. His character remains the same. So we can ask ourselves, who has given first and who has given best? And the answer is always God. Our God is a God who gives. He is eternal and he's infinite in power. And and, and at the very beginning, right, beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. What is creation if not an act of God? Giving of himself. Producing and giving so that we can be people who experience relationship with God and one another and enjoy him. 
And so I'm just gonna, this might be, seem tedious for a moment, but like, I just want us to walk through like, like a bit of the Old Testament to show you that our God is a God who gives. In the first book, Genesis, God, the creator, gives a promise to what? Bless the whole world through the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why he says, children of Jacob. He's talking about a family of blessing. In Exodus, God, the deliverer, gives freedom from slavery in Egypt to his people. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And then later in Exodus, he spends a dozen chapters, maybe if you're on your reading plan, you're there now, a dozen chapters discussing the details and design of the tabernacle, the place where God will dwell with his people. I mean, and he gets into serious details. This is the, this is the holy camping gear, right? Because they're going through the wilderness. So this is the holy camping gear. This is, where, this is God's tent. It's, it's like, like clamping for God. Okay, I didn't put that in the notes. Don't hashtag that. Um, maybe you can. I don't know. Let's go. He gets details about the priestly garments, the furniture. And then all of these details, God says, this is what the temple's going to look like. This is what worship's going to look like. And then he even goes and says, and this is how it's going to be paid for. I've given you guys everything. I, I am telling the people of God to contribute to the work of God through, through the worship of God. And so at the beginning there in Exodus, he's setting forth a precedent that has carried on for several thousand years for God's people in terms of how does something like a church happen through the cheerful, regular, sacrificial giving of people that call that church home. Like, like God, that pattern gets reinforced over and over through the Old Testament. In Leviticus, God, the legislature, gives out all these laws for how we can relate to him and his creation and each other. In the book of Numbers, God is like a, a field guide and, and he's leading people. And so he, he gives daily food and constant correction. In Joshua, God, the general, strategically gives his people victory and he gives them the promised land. In Judges, God, the merciful, uh, gives judges to help save his people from their own unfaithfulness. In First and Second Samuel, God, the priest, gives Samuel to his people as a priest to renew pure worship, to anoint Saul and then David as kings to lead God's family faithfully. In First and Second Kings, and then also Chronicles, right? God, the King of Kings, gives his people numerous human kings to remind them that they are to seek and enjoy the kingdom of God above all things. In the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, God, the restorer, uses Nehemiah, and he gives to Nehemiah. And how does he do it? Nehemiah actually draws up a budget for a building campaign and requests a purchase order from the pagan god king Artaxerxes. Like, 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 read Nehemiah again and tell me Nehemiah didn't get a PPP from the government from COVID cash. That's what he did. Like, like, like the storehouse of this kingdom that was not godly said, hey, yeah, we'll fund that building project. We got it for you. God provides in so many ways. In Psalms, God, the poet and musician, gives us a window to his heart and his head so that we can think and feel like God, with God. In Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, God the wise gives wisdom on how we work and live and love in ways that lead to our joy. So many godly principles there about how we use our money, how we use our time, what do our relationships look like, and then Song of Solomon, what does marriage look like? It's good, okay. 
In, in the book Prophets, God gives the prophets numerous men to remind his people that I have intentionally planned to give you eternal life. That God's plan hasn't changed. A Savior's given to fulfill the promises that he gave all the way back in Genesis. Isaiah points to Jesus, right? Ezekiel, Daniel point to Revelation um, with, with mapping out this eternal city that God gives to his people. Like the end of the Bible, you need to know, ends with God giving again. Here is a city you didn't build. Here's a new heavens and new earth that will not wear out, that is free from sin, suffering, death, all of those things. And then Malachi, this prophet here that we just read, the last prophet before 400 years of silence, and then Jesus shows up. And God's people are reminded not to be presumptuous. Like, the thing's amazing. The last thing God says to his people before 400 years of silence is like, hey, I haven't changed. My principles still remain. My promises to bring life are true. And then after 400 years, Jesus shows up, affirming all of God's promises. And so from garden to desert to city, by tabernacles and temples, by promising lands and promising the child Emmanuel to promising Jesus' return, God has an intentional plan to redeem, reconcile, and restore his people. And God is so intentional about his glory and our joy because they matter to him. That God is a good and loving creator. And part of how he creates is to intentionally give so that we can respond by being intentional givers. That's, that's why we would give. Like we give out of a response to who God is. The giving and satisfaction and gratitude, like that's, those aren't typically our general dispositions, Right? Some of you who are parents, right? I mean, we're, we're like four weeks, six weeks rather, eight weeks removed from Christmas. Like anybody ever been around a Christmas where like a kid opens a gift and they're like, not what I wanted, right? Just doesn't show that gratitude. I mean, not my kids. They were like, oh, thank you, Father. You've selected everything perfectly. And I was like, your mom got it. I don't know. Like whatever, right? We know how it works. Okay. Right? We always respond with gratitude. And so what he's doing in these verses is he saying, hey, hey, I haven't changed. You think somehow that, that more independence, more holding on to, to your stuff is going to lead to ultimate joy, that somehow consuming is going to lead to fullness when it just makes us more and more empty. Ever consumed more and found yourself emptier? He's saying, no, I'm calling you to be contributors. Now, that's part of how fullness works. And then he's kind of answering objections that we have in our head, like, well, well, God, like, if I give, if I'm generous in my giving, like, God, don't you know my budget? Don't you know what the economy is like right now? I mean, we're up 60 cents in gas in two months. I mean, this is like last year. Like, God, don't you know what's going on? And God's like, yeah, yeah, I've got the cattle on a thousand hills. I created the entire universe. I give you your very breath. Every heartbeat you have, like you've never told yourself, beat heart, beat heart, beat heart, because God has put it in you. And so he's saying, hey, I haven't changed. Put me to the test. What an amazing thing for God to say. Because I I hope none of us would say that to God. Hey, God, 
put me to the test. God, I promise I will show up for you. God, I will, I will be blameless and holy. I will be great to everyone. Good luck. Right? I, I have never prayed a prayer like, God, put me to the test. Why? Because I've read the book of Job. <laughs> right? Like, it, it was rough. And hey, Job made it good for him. He gets a whole book of the Bible. He had to deal with chapters and chapters of horrible friends telling him, well, you just you didn't have enough faith. That's why all these horrible things happened to you. You didn't tithe enough, Job. That's why it happened. <laughs> no. God says, put me to the test. What God is saying in that is he's saying, do you trust me? And then he's saying, trust me. And he's saying, because I am trustworthy. The reason I just went through every Old Testament book to show how God is a giver is because we forget the character and nature of God. That that strand of him being a giver can be seen throughout all of it. And at the end of the Old Testament, he's saying, hey, hey, yes, long for Jesus. Like, like he's the one that's going to bring life. He's the one that ultimately will bring restoration. But in the meantime, and then you can see the New Testament like ratifies this over and over, be generous. And he's saying, put me to the test because he's saying, I've already given you so much. I've given you before. I'm giving you presently. I will give you in the future. Man, we just, we doubt at times. And that's okay. It's okay to, to doubt. But God's response for us being faithless in things like giving and, and trust and all that stuff, because we, you know, we believe in scarcity and, and, and all this, like sin has led to scarcity. Sin leads to toil, right? Work's not always easy, right? Being a student's not always easy. But God's response to our rejection is to pursue relationship, provide redemption, and promise restoration. So he's saying, you can trust me. Like, yeah, you might go through a season where you've lost a job. You might go through a season where it's difficult to pay your bills. And he's saying, hey, through all of this, I promise. Like, he's saying this. You can't outgive me. So we can be generous. There, I mean, like, I just want you to know, you can't outgive God. We can't outgive God who gave us everything. And so he's calling us to be generous, that God fulfills his giving in and through Jesus Christ, God's son, coming to us intentionally, dying for us sacrificially, so that he can cheerfully purchase and promise resurrected life now and forever. So all of our giving is in a response to the God who's a giver. And so let me encourage you to grow in faith and part of how we can grow in faith is how we trust God with our time, talent, and treasure. I know that's challenging, but I just want you to know, I, I, like, we will never outgive God. There's this awesome phrase he has here um, in verse 11. It says, I will rebuke the devourer for you. Your Bible translation might say, they don't really know what the word means in some regards, um, but, but they know the, the general idea of it says, probably a name for a crop-destroying pest or, 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 or pestilence. He's saying, like, this is a very agrarian society, and he's literally saying, hey, I'm God. Like, I brought your... your your forefathers out of Egypt by, by locusts and gnats and all these horrible curses. 
and all that sound stuff. But what he's doing is saying, I've got a mighty strong hand. At the beginning here, it says he's the Lord of hosts. That means God of angel armies. He's, he's saying, I am powerful. And I can stay back the devourer. Now that doesn't mean, I mean, I've, I've heard this taught, I'll just say, I'll, I'll go wrongly, but I was in a church context where they're just like, hey, if you give, you know, nothing bad's gonna happen, right? You know, your, your car's gonna go to 400,000 miles and, and all that. Well, okay, I, I get where they were coming from, but God can actually say, he's like, he led people through 40 years of wilderness, and it says their sandals didn't wear out, and their clothes didn't get threadbare. I mean, they obviously aren't buying flannels from Costco like I am because this thing ain't gonna look good in another like three weeks, right? All of our stuff wears out. And so I think sometimes we believe, well, okay, God, yeah, like, I mean, I just wanna be safe. So like if I give, if I, if I tithe, like wow, 10%, God, like if I actually did that, like, I mean, what if something happened during the month and I, I had something like bad happen? And so like, I mean, I told you guys last week uh, a little bit about how like, hey, we were in debt for a while and like we, we, just, we just resolved to give even while we were coming out of debt. But, but there were a, a few times where I can literally say, this is weird that this happened. I'll just chalk it up as, as weird. Not saying it was the Lord, okay? But like, a a month or two, like, I either forgot to give or, like, I hadn't set it up automatically. And then it's like you get a few weeks into the month and then you've started to pay some bills. And you're like, well, I don't want to give now because, I mean, there's a lot of month left. There's a lot of weeks, you know, right? More days left than there is pay in the paycheck, right? And so I, like, I resolved, you know, like, not to give. I don't think I even told Tara that time. And then, like, like two times it happened in, like, a year. And both times... Wouldn't you know, on my way to work, I happened to get a speeding ticket. I was also speeding, so that's why. So like, I don't want to say it was all the Lord, but it was like the speeding ticket at that time equaled the amount of what my giving was. And I was like, I mean, it happened a couple times. So like, I'm not saying this is always going to happen, right? We're not like, well, hey, if you give, you're going to get more. Like, but I was like, I didn't, I didn't earn or gain anything that month by not giving. And then for months and months after that, my insurance was higher and higher. And um, even on the drive in today, I didn't get a speeding ticket. Um, but, but my kids were like, Dad, do you, do you have a criminal record? And I was like, well, I do think it's somewhere that I was, you know, had enough speeding tickets that I got a suspended license. So yeah, it's probably, okay, right? Th this isn't now, all right? This, right? this is a gracious place. That's not the worst thing I've even done in my life. Okay, all right. It's a place of grace, guys. All right, Jesus paid it all. And I paid those tickets, okay? All right, that's how it works, all right? All right, let's go to part two. We long for Jesus. That's what he's doing in these verses. Hey, be faithful. I haven't changed. I'm a giver. Jesus is gonna be the one who gives ultimately. And let's look to Jesus here. Philippians 2, three through nine. Philippians chapter two, three through nine says this. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let's each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Part of how we can grow in generosity 
is to, again, change our orientation from inward to outward, but also upward, to looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. And it says here, early on, don't do, be selfish, right? Don't be conceited. Humility, count others more than yourself. But he says the reason we can do that is in verse five, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, if you're a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then that means you actually have, believe it or not, the mind of Christ. He's saying the thought patterns of Christ. And you're like, well, what does that mean? He goes on to explain what it means. He said, well, well, Christ didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We've, we've been teaching this in a quip about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God, right? Uh, all equal in, in value, yet distinct in persons and roles. And, and Jesus Christ, God the Son, his mindset was not one of self-focus, but of others' focus. That if there was any man if there's a God who is truly more significant than everyone else, it's Jesus. And he's saying, hey, y'all, meaning us, we, me, don't think too highly of yourselves. Don't think of yourselves, not, not at all, but don't think of yourselves as more significant than you are. He's saying Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is the most significant. And his mindset wasn't, I am most significant. It was, let me empty myself. Let me not be a consumer, but let me be a contributor. Let me empty myself. Let me leave all the comforts of heaven to go to a poor place in a poor world in a difficult geopolitical time, a lot of poverty going on in that point of, of history. And he experienced wilderness. And he experienced exile from the perfection of heaven. And he didn't mope about it. He was, he was radically present. He gave of himself. He gave a perfect life of obedience. I mean, it must have been a giving experience for Jesus to go from the throne room of heaven to be a baby, to be a child, to be an adolescent, to be a young adult, to live in abject poverty, to live in, in it, amongst a people group and a nation that was oppressed by the Roman government and by their own corrupt officials internally. These are all things he dealt with. And in this, it was for a purpose to walk in obedience so that we could also be obedient. And of all the obedient things that Jesus did, like Jesus is sinless, he's perfect. He perfectly followed God. He perfectly obeyed God. The apex of his obedience, it says, was willingly giving of himself by going to the cross where his body was broken. That's what we remember at communion. Where his blood was shed. He's saying, you want to look at the mindset of Christ? He should be first. He is first. But his mindset was one of giving so that others may have life. That Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, walked in 
obedience, all of the riches of heaven, empty himself to the point of poverty on a, uh, for a purpose so that we who are spiritually poor might be rich in him. So I just think that sometimes when we don't give or don't see ourselves as generous or aren't regularly contributing, it's because we've lost sight of who we are. We've lost sight and we don't understand who we are, that we are the ones who've been given much. That we are the ones who've also been called to be givers. And so we wanna, we wanna be disciplined to give because we desire to emulate the example of Jesus and how he has given to us. Like it's okay to call us as the people, that, like we say we're Christians, disciples of Jesus who love God and love people. Well, then we should look to Jesus as an example. If you're a disciple of Jesus, we look to Jesus as an example. And I can, I can kind of hear it in your head, and part of it's because I heard it in my own head, like, hey, that's great that Jesus is a self-sacrificial giver. He's God and has everything. I'm not. I don't have everything. Like, and, and I want to be clear, too. Like, like, Jesus is our example, but he's also our Savior. So, like, there's no sacrifice that we give so that God will love us. Because God has already given the sacrifice in Christ because he loves us. So that we can respond in love. So I always want us to be reoriented back to the gospel, back to the good news. And not just called, hey, if you're Jesus' people, better look like Jesus. Because guess what? Like, we're gonna fail at that. If your goal is look like Jesus, we're gonna fail at that. That doesn't mean Jesus stops being our example. It doesn't mean that in the Holy Spirit, he's not sanctifying us and growing us more and more in Christ's likeness. We'll talk next week and the next two weeks about growth and maturity. Like, like we are called to live lives that, that look more and more like Jesus. But if you got that attorney in your head or maybe like the accountant in your head that's kind of like, well, okay, that's good for Jesus. But like, I mean, Jesus paid it all. Like, I, I can't do that. We don't, we don't do that. And then because he's my sacrifice, like, I mean, I wouldn't want to, you know, somehow give and think that, that God owes me. So, like, maybe I just won't give. All right, last section of Scripture. We've longed for Jesus. We've looked at Jesus. Let's listen to Jesus. Because Jesus has taught his disciples how we are to look at money. He did it on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. He says this. Because like, I mean, it, maybe if we're like, if we can't like, like emulate Jesus as an example, we should still listen to his teaching. Nobody expects us to give as much as Jesus has given, right? We can't out give God. But he has called us to be givers. And he says this in verse, um, sorry, uh, Matthew 6, verse 19 through 24. There we go. I took out my, there we go. Here it is. It says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth or rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moss nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the light in you is darkness. How great is the darkness! 
No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Which masters is he talking about? You cannot serve God and money. In the Greek, it's mammon, which is a, a, a word for, for a God of prosperity, for money, for possessions. This last section of scripture, I want us to consider a few things. I want you to consider that money is worship. I want, I want our mindset to be money equals worship. And this isn't a great leap, right? What's worship? Worth-ship. Like, like money is actually how we assign worth to things. Money is actually how we worship. That, that, that money, every single dollar you spend, save, invest, give, is a doctrinal statement about the God you serve and what you believe in. Because you are assigning worth to things, right? And if we're a disciple of Jesus Christ who love God and love people, we have to talk about what money looks like. I mean, Jesus spends nearly 25% of his parables and teaching talking about money. So I'll just confess, two weeks in a row preaching on giving, not my sweet spot. I'm uncomfortable. You are too. That's fine. If we were literally going to follow the rhythms of Jesus, once a month we would preach on giving. That's not the preaching calendar, so don't worry. And don't try to guess again which month that, or week that is, right? Next time we preach on giving, I'm not going to schedule in advance. There'll be no study guide. You're just going to show up and you'll be like, oh, here it is, giving again. No, it's a doctrinal statement about where our hope is. Our dollars are doctrinal statement about what we value, about what we worship, because we're assigning worth to things, to, to things, to services, to experiences, to organizations. All of that is how we use our money. So how we spend and what we give shows what we see and find as worthy of our affections and our worship. Every dollar we spend, every dollar we give and invest is a doctrinal statement about what we believe about God, about what we believe about others, what we believe about the world around us. And so, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to follow what Jesus teaches here. And Jesus knows the condition of our hearts. He knows that we are extremely disciplined about placing money where we desire it. And you're like, well, no, I don't always just spend what I want. You're like, well, sometimes you pay your rent because you do not desire to be evicted, Right? Like, apparently when I didn't pay that speeding ticket, I didn't desire to, <laughs> to, to not get a suspended license. Wow, that's in the sermon twice now. All right, great. We always give to what we desire. You buy food, it's because you need food, right? You, you, you desire to pay your power bill, right? You, you get it, right? We give to what we desire. But I want you to know this. Know that money's not evil. Money's not evil. Like, the verse is not, money is the root of all evil. The verse is, the love of, all, of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All money is is a tool. It's a tool for worship. It's a tool to, to function. It's a tool to navigate life. And so where we direct money and, and where is what we find ultimately valuable and desirous. And so we don't look at money and, and say, it's just all about this earth, right? Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to also consider eternity. He says, hey, if you only invest in earthly things, that's where thieves show up 
In the case of this building, I believe uh, 10 times in the last six years. And it's where moths destroy. He's like, if you only invest in things and stuff, they're gonna wear out. He's saying, I want you to have an eternal perspective so that as you use money as a tool for worship, for blessing, for provision, you're doing it with eternity in mind. That you're investing with eternity in mind. See, we give to what we find glorious. Every moment of our lives, every heartbeat we're granted, every breath we take, every dollar we make is directed to us from God to be used for God. And I do want to be clear. Part of how God gives to us is for our provision. Right, so last week we said the, the, the poor church in Macedonia, uh, Paul was instructing the church in Corinth, hey, be generous givers, be cheerful, regular, sacrificial. But then he says, but not to the point of personal affliction. Right, so that's like sometimes there's, it's weird at times to see like TV preachers, like, hey, give us a thousand dollars and your grandkid will be saved and here's the credit card, you can use it. Go into debt, it's fine. God will take that seat and pay off your credit card debt. Like, ah. like, like no, he's not saying personal affliction. Like God has given you finances for your provision. God has even placed you here in the United States in this time to be provided for in certain ways. So it's super frustrating to like pay taxes and stuff, but like it's also nice to have roads and schools. So like he's like, this is part of the system that you're in. This is part of how I provide for human flourishing. And so we should be reminded that we exist for a purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So I also want you to know, part of why God gives to you is for provision, but it's also for enjoyment. In fact, there's an instruction you can find in the book of Deuteronomy for, for tithing and giving that if somehow you find yourself so far away from a, from a temple, synagogue, you know, kind of a church gathering, it says, hey, take, you know, your 10% of your, your harvest, go uh, take it into the marketplace um, and, and sell it. Take that 10%, get money, and then use it to buy whatever your hearts desire, to get good food, good drink, and then bring your family together and celebrate like it's Christmas morning. They didn't have Christmas because it was the Old Testament. Jesus hadn't been born yet. But that's what he's saying. If you're so far away from the rest of society and there's no church you can give to, then do that. Some of you now are thinking, I should move off grid far, far away so that all of my tithing can be for feasts. I mean, it sounds like a great deal. Okay, right? But this is where we live. We're here in Snohomish County. And we, I believe, have been provided for in ways that lead to just our sustenance. But also if we think about it and have attitudes with some gratitude, I, I think for, for joy as well. That there are things that we enjoy in this life. So I want you to ask yourself, how are you currently directing your time, talent, and treasure? See, it does matter to God. Um, Jesus um, ha- has this phrase here in Matthew 6. Maybe you saw it. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, this is interesting. How you direct your money will direct your heart. How we, how we direct our money will direct our heart. See, we always say like, hey, desire drives discipline and that creates devotion. But discipline can also foster desire. 
And that's what Jesus is teaching here. That somehow you can, you can confess Jesus, hey, I, I profess Jesus, and, and I just, if something else is functionally functioning as your treasure, then you should ask, like, is Jesus actually first? This is a call to look at your budget, to look at your schedule. How are you spending your time and money? Because when you look at your schedule and you look at your budget, that will tell you where your heart really is. And so sometimes our battle isn't one with budget or income, it's with our heart first. Because money isn't always about math, right? Money is about worship. And so money is tied to our hearts. I mean, Paul does it several times in the New Testament. Jesus, very comfortable with tying together money and our hearts. He says, how does money affect our hearts? Well, here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't say, look into your heart and there your treasure will be also. He doesn't just say, follow your heart, right? He doesn't do the Disney version of theology. He says our hearts will actually follow where we put our treasure. And this seems counterintuitive to us because we like to be guided by our hearts and by our emotions and our feelings that we don't consider, hey, how could I direct my heart? How could I direct my desire towards what God wants for us? When Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he's saying two things are true. That, that number one, our hearts will direct our treasure. Like that will happen. He's saying, I know that's going to happen. He then says, so now let me tell you the other aspect. Number two, our treasure directs our hearts. How does this work? When you invest time, talent, treasure into something, you care more about it than when you don't. So full disclosure, I don't own any crypto. Part of why, I don't understand what it is, okay? So when I read stories about crypto's up, I don't get excited. And when I read stories like crypto's worth nothing, I'm like, I didn't know what it was to begin with because I don't care. Okay, but I, I am trying to invest for retirement because I love my kids and hope to not be too much of a burden on them when they're older. Um, part of my retirement is I hope that one of the six strikes it rich and then just is really generous and likes us. That's, that's one of the plans. But like, so I do follow the stock market a little bit. I, I own, or rather in, you know, 29 years will own a house here in Somish County. And so I follow the housing market. See, you know, I, I care deeply about what happens here at Mercy Fellowship because I've invested years here and dollars here and energy here. And so like when you invest in something, you just care more about it. So Jesus is saying, hey, maybe your heart's not there yet. Put your treasure in front of where you want your heart to go. And then your heart will go there. Because, man, you invest in something, you care. Right? You invest in something, you care. Every time we spend or fail to spend or hold back or invest wisely, it's an act of worship to one master or another. So either we're going to be intentional or unintentionally serving ourselves, or we're going to be intentional about serving the Lord. He talks about kingdoms. And the truth of the matter is, whether it's money, whether it's your sexuality, whether it's your time, whether it's your heart's affections, whatever it is, there is only one throne for your heart. And it is a grand throne, but it has room for one king. As Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is to be king of our hearts. 
that he is to be king over all things. So that doesn't mean, hey, be generous and sell your house and do all these different things. Like, but it does mean consider where is your treasure? And then like he laid out all the way back in, all the way back in Exodus and ratified all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. God's design for his economy on how the church even exists, how it functions, how we have staff, how we have a place to be is because we also believe this. We believe that money is mission ammunition. That I, I will say this probably a lot of weeks in a row here. Our mission is not to make budget, it's to make disciples. We don't seek to maintain a building, we seek to advance the kingdom of God. And part of how God does that is through us, cheerfully regular sacrificial giving to fund the mission. We've been saved by the gospel to advance the gospel. And so I don't want us to, to over-spiritualize and, and be like, well, hey, you know, yeah, God's got your soul, but, you know, you got your money. Heard that one. Like, oh, I, I, I trust God for my eternal salvation, but I'm not going to trust him for my budget and my finances now. I also don't want us to fall into the other ditch and just come to the place where all we care about is material provision or material matters without considering the spiritual reality so I want you to ask yourself, where is your heart? And then I want you to ask yourself, who has your heart? Because maybe your next step today is just to confess faith in Jesus. And you're like, oh wait, are you gonna ask me to give too? Like, well, no, again, Jesus paid it all on the cross. We can't outgive God. And yeah, part of our discipleship is growing in how we use our finances. I, I find it often, it's usually like the last not the last, but it's one of the last pieces of discipleship because it's the last part of our own life that we hold on to. But maybe it's your day to make that first step. To say, I don't want to be my own king. Like, God, you've made me. You've, you've made everything. And in sin, I find myself in a deficit that I can never pay off. But Jesus Christ, as my Savior, has paid my debt of sin. God, you have provided salvation, and you have promised eternity. Place your faith and trust in Jesus today. Be baptized and signify Jesus' death for you and resurrection so that you could be given new life now and forever. Maybe your next step, if you're a, a Christian, is just to say, hey, this is going to be my, my home church. And how I'm going to show that is being cheerful, regular, and sacrificial in my giving. And maybe that's, maybe that's 10% for you. That's part of that, what the Bible teaches. You want more teaching on that? We can, we can talk more about that. Maybe it's less, maybe it's more, but we know it's cheerful. Not out of compulsion. Not like, well, Chris hit it for two weeks in a row, so I guess I should probably do it. Like, no, just pray about it. But, but I love what God said in Malachi. Go ahead and put me to the test. See what happens if you're generous. Our God's already proven that he's good, loving, powerful, wise, and kind. He's already proven that he will always outgive us. So maybe we can be people who can give cheerfully, regularly, and sacrificially. And just merely go about our days knowing that God has given to us so that we can exhale, rest, gather, give, and grow 
as we continue to trust Jesus. Let's pray.